Hi, welcome to the 5 by the podcast that offers up five board game reviews in about 25 minutes. In this episode, Luke explores new frontiers. I do my best to abandon all artichokes. Mason feeds his chickens in Picomino, and Ruth visits Agra. But first, Sarah takes the mic in Rap Gods. Considering how much board games engage our imaginations, it's a bit disappointing how slow the industry has generally been to step outside the rather narrow range of themes so many games seem to be trapped in. Trading in the Mediterranean again? The world is so full of interesting people and ideas to base a game on. That's why the new game Rap Gods is a breath of fresh air. Designed by Omari Akil with art by Hamu Dennis, Rap Gods was published in 2020 by Akil and Dennis's company, Board Game Brothers. Gameplay is easy. Each player is an up-and-coming rapper trying to make a name for themselves. You play cards, which give you record plaques, aka victory points, and advance you in one of three attributes, swag, skills, or streets. There are special cards which let you start a beef with another player, and the loser doesn't just lose points but has to give them to the winner. Although the cards are functional, don't neglect the flavor text, which is often hilarious. One example I loved, local news story about you, now grandma can truly understand what I do. That dry humor is on display in the rulebook as well, especially in the fact at the end. One of the questions is, what to do if you can't play any of the cards in your hand? And the answer is, your turn is over. Do better next time. Rap God's theme is, first of all, unique in the board game world as far as I know. I've never seen a game like this before and more importantly, is deeply appealing, both in concept and treatment. Rap is one of the few truly American art forms. Like jazz, it was created, honed, and perfected by Black Americans. It's thrilling to find a game that celebrates hip-hop, created by people who clearly love the genre and community, and were able to convey that love in the game. Hamu Dennis's graffiti art style is brimming with energy and color and brings the hip-hop theme to life. I love the range of character art, people of all shapes and sizes, and I really love how many of the player characters are female rappers. The game board looks like a mixing board with a turntable in the middle and sliders for the round trackers. And there's a chain illustration on every card that lines up so when you lay them in a column, it looks like one long chain. There's so much attention to detail in the art and components. I expected Rap Gods to be a lightweight card game with a fun theme, and it is. But to my surprise, it's also kind of a storytelling game. This doesn't happen every time, but when playing Rap Gods, often I'll find myself building a character with a coherent personality. I'll look down at my tableau mid-game, realize I've been playing a lot of cards about the same thing, and then start looking for more cards in the same vein. In one game, I played a community leader who did political advocacy, donated to a college library, and even founded a community garden. In that same game, my opponent played a car collector who kept buying bigger and better cars for himself, for his mom, was even in a car accident at one point. It became funnier every time he played another card about cars. Another game, I played a workaholic who was all about the music. It seemed like every card I played was about what I was sampling, hustling to get my work noticed, and learning new equipment and techniques. I especially loved the card about getting to work with a bigger DJ who had a recording studio in their closet. I don't know, when I read that card, I kind of felt like I knew my character, like I could feel their drive. An up-and-coming kid who's been working so hard on their rhymes, haunting used record stores to find just the right samples, is so excited to get access to a real recording studio, and hey, who cares if it's in a closet? It's got that egg carton foam on the walls and everything. 
it felt like a real moment about a real person. I will say that Rap Gods is very luck-driven. If your cards don't happen to align, you may end up with, first of all, the story not coalescing the way you'd like, and even worse, a crushing defeat that you can't really do anything about. If you're looking for a dense engine-building game about careful strategy, this isn't that, and it isn't trying to be that. Now, I've played games of Rap Gods where I could tell by the halfway point I was not going to win. If this were a heavy Euro and I'd spent two hours planning and strategizing, I'd find that infuriating. But in a shorter, fast-paced game like Rap Gods, I didn't really mind. It's still fun, and the game is fast enough that if I didn't like the cards I got, there's time to play again. There are some mechanisms that I suspect work better with three or four players, like beefing and some of the player powers. But unfortunately, I can't say, because I got my copy shortly before things got all weird, and I've only had the opportunity to play with the two people in my house. It is very fun with two, and it's on Tabletopia if you'd like to play with a wider group. If you're interested in buying Rap Gods, maybe don't sit too long on that. The game was recently part of a grassroots fundraiser for Black Lives Matter, sponsored by Danny Plays Games, and the benefit was so successful Rap Gods sold out at the publisher a couple of weeks ago. A reprint is probably a ways off, but you can still find copies of the first printing at friendly local game stores around the country, maybe near you or maybe one that does mail order. And if you buy the game and then donate to the Black Lives Matter Global Network, it's just like being part of the fundraiser. You can play Rap Gods as just a game about playing cards, moving forward on the track, rolling dice to steal from your opponents, and it's fun that way. But if you pay attention to the cards, if you're open to the story they're telling you, you'll find yourself inhabiting a world that feels vivid and true. It's a special game that can do that in 45 minutes. And that's Rap Gods. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Iterative designs have become the norm in modern board gaming. Over the last 20 years, the market has proven it will bear an abundance of minor changes marketed as vast differences. Designers swam out to ride this wave, creating incrementally different designs that, in any other era, would have been nothing more than their throwaway tries between actual releases. Publishers stoked the fires, creating a cyclical hype machine that allows them to release multiple games with minor changes in rapid succession, which find enough short-term success to warrant their production, but not enough long-term differentiation to warrant their existence. And yet, this iterative design process has brought us some of the industry's best games. Agricola, Caverna, and A Feast for Odin are regularly compared and contrasted as evolutions of a specific thread in Uwe Rosenberg's design ethos each filling their own circle on a Venn diagram of fans with surprisingly small overlaps. Down the road, I have a feeling a lot of people will feel the same way about Tom Lehman's iterations on a formula with Race for the Galaxy, Roll for the Galaxy, and the game that I'm reviewing today, New Frontiers. When New Frontiers was announced, and in the first few months of its existence, the general feeling from longtime race players manifested in the question, why does this need to exist? While I've definitely asked that question of games in the past, Cottage Garden Indian Summer and Spring Meadow jump immediately to mind, I never felt that way about New Frontiers. And, after having previously played and loved both Race and Roll, after playing New Frontiers, I ended up selling them both, having found my favorite take on this particular design. In New Frontiers, players try to build the most successful society by colonizing planets, developing technologies, and producing and trading goods through a similar take on the lead-follow action selection mechanism employed by the other Race for the Galaxy games, and also by games like Puerto Rico, San Juan, and Eminent Domain. On a player's turn, they'll select one of seven different actions. All players will have the opportunity to execute that action, but the player who selected it will get an augmented version. 
players can develop a technology, explore the galaxy to draw new planets to colonize, settle a planet they've explored, produce goods on planets they've colonized, trade or consume those goods, send diplomatic envoys that change their position in the turn order, or chart a galactic goal for an extra endgame scoring boost. Like its predecessors, New Frontiers is an engine builder. The general flow of the game sees players exploring and settling new planets which not only grant points but will produce goods and grant abilities, buying developments which augment their actions, trading goods for money, and consuming goods for victory points. Almost everything you can do advances the game clock, forcing players to, weirdly, race toward the end. An individual player covering 10 development spaces on their player board or colonizing 7 planets will trigger the endgame, as well as the common pool of colonists dipping below 5 or fully depleting the bank of VP chits. Overall, there's nothing particularly innovative about the mechanisms in New Frontiers. It is, after all, merely Puerto Rico the card game the board game. Each individual action has a counterpart in race or role, and the game smartly recycles artwork and some symbology from those games. But Lehman has massaged the balance of factors from his previous designs into something that retains their feel and flow while building something wholly unique among them. For example, when you explore in New Frontiers, you draw seven planets at random from a bag and lay them out for all to view. You pick one, each other player picks one, then you get to pick a second from the remainder as your bonus for choosing the action. This particular implementation manages to feel more interactive than its counterpart in race, and both faster and more intuitive than its counterpart in role, which had the tendency at times to slow that game to a crawl. Little tweaks like this, designed to work well within a more traditional modern board game framework as opposed to a pure card game or a push-your-luck dice fest, work to smooth out many of the rough edges I found in the earlier games and blend into a cohesive whole that distinguishes itself from its older siblings. This smoothness also makes New Frontiers a fantastic entry point into the Race for the Galaxy universe for new players who might be intimidated by Race's wall of icons or Roll's comparative counterintuitiveness. Although it differentiates itself in significant ways, I do agree with many assessments that there may not be much place for multiple Race for the Galaxy titles in a single library. In this case, however, it's not a knock against New Frontiers that invalidates its existence. It just requires thoughtful consideration of which of the three games appeals to your individual tastes the strongest. For a brief period of time, I owned all three games, and I genuinely love them all. But when New Frontiers entered the mix, I had to honestly ask myself, with a choice between the three, is race or role ever leaving the shelf in favor of New Frontiers? My answer is a solid no. The equation might not be the same for you, but I'd wholeheartedly suggest playing New Frontiers rather than dismissing it as unnecessary. It is a gorgeous physical production and an extremely polished design that exudes the love Tom Lehman has for this franchise. Oh, and also, it's really fun. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple or on my website, PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! As children, most of us probably went through a stage where we would attempt to hide our vegetables in order to avoid eating them. I know I often tried to hide them in napkins or cut them up into tiny bits, hoping they'd pass for scraps and be scraped off the plate and into the trash. In return, my mom would dice them up and put them in our rice or slather them in butter or sour cream, hoping to get us to eat those dreaded green menaces. I'd often balk at my mother's calabazas con crema as a kid, but I honestly love them now because they remind me of being a kid. Thankfully, most of us probably grew out of that phase and have had a long and fruitful relationship with vegetables. And like most vegetables, tabletop games can also be acquired tastes. So I'm always happy to try out games that can be served up as palatable introductions to a specific type of game. 
Abandon All Artichokes from designer Emma Larkins is a deck-building game from publisher GameRight. A review copy of the game was provided to me by Emma Larkins. So, how does the game work? Unlike most deck-building games, which usually start you off with a deck of basic cards that can be used to buy other cards, Abandon All Artichoke starts you off with a bunch of artichoke cards that don't really do much. You can't buy other cards with them, and in fact, you win the game by getting rid of them. If you ever draw a hand of 5 cards from your deck at the end of your turn, and none of these cards are artichokes, you win. In order to completely remove the titular thistle from your deck, you're going to have to leverage the power of the garden cards. At the beginning of your turn, you can take one of the 5 cards that make up the garden row. And unlike in most deck building games, you don't have to pay for these cards. Which is great because being able to take any of the cards available on offer without paying lets you focus on taking whatever card suits your strategy at the moment. What can you get for free in a game of Abandon All Artichokes? Well, the garden deck consists of multiple copies of 10 different cards. Cards run the gamut from a carrot card that allows you to remove artichokes from the game, to a corn card that lets you take a card from the garden row and place it on top of your deck. Once you've taken your free card from the market, you're able to play any number of cards from your hand as long as you can fully carry out the card's action. The corn card, for example, lets you compost exactly two artichokes, granted you have two artichokes to compost. So, it won't help you get rid of your last artichoke. Leak cards let you draw the top card from an opponent's deck, and you decide whether to add it to your own hand or to send it to their discard pile. Removing cards from your deck and adding cards to the top of your deck are usually pretty good moves to make in most deck builders, but these are also moves that might not be apparent to players that are new to this type of game. Abandon All Artichokes does well to center the game around a few choice actions as a way to get players to become better acquainted with deck building games. Another great thing I really like about the game is how players are able to take a garden card and play it right away. Not having to wait for a newly added card to get shuffled back into the deck is just one of the many lovely design choices in Abandon All Artichokes that makes the game speedy and approachable. And while there are only 10 different types of garden cards that you can add to your deck, the actions they let you take make for a balanced game. The game often seems like a race to either cut cards from your deck or to grow your deck enough that drawing an artichoke becomes less and less likely. There's plenty of game in Abandon All Artichokes for a game its size and weight. Assembling a strategy from the available market cards while keeping an eye on what your opponents are doing to ditch their own artichokes makes for a fun and lighter game. The illustrations by Bonnie Pang are suitably cute. And while the game does come in a tin, it's small enough that it's not an encumbrance. And honestly, the game itself, all 100 cards of it, will probably live in my quiver carrying case anyway. The game's rulebook calls it a deck wrecker, and I really love this description as it really gets to the heart of the game. Whether you're building up your deck or getting rid of the majority of your deck, Abandon All Artichokes serves up a satisfying snack-sized approach to deck building that is approachable and fun. It's a game that'll stay in my collection as an excellent filler. I highly recommend it for those times when you want to play a deck builder but don't have enough time for a long game. It's also an outstanding way to introduce deck building games to friends and family. After all, it's like my mom used to tell me, ¿Cómo sabes que no te gusta si no lo has probado? How do you know that you don't like it if you haven't tried it? For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter and Instagram as Book of Nerds and on my blog, bookofnerds.com. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Picomino. If you've listened to the show for any period of time, you know that I just love Dr. Reiner Kinesia. That's, of course, not to say that all Kinesia games are good or far from it. When you have over 500 published titles to your credit, and you've worked with a core team of other designers and developers, as well as dozens of other publishers over the last 40 years, 
there's just no way you can have a 100% success rate. A lot of Kinesia's games are some sort of variation of a basic idea from one of his books, which really should be considered foundational works in modern tabletop design, or they're a rehash of some previous game that he did, or they're just a straight retheme, or they're just the exact same game with the exact same art but a different name. It's very difficult to keep track of it all, and no one's going to fault you for not doing so. Occasionally, I come across a Dr. K title that I've meant to play for years, but haven't been able to, either because it was out of print, or because it requires more than the two players normally available to me, i.e. Megan and me. Picomino has been on our two-play list since we bought our first Kinesia title, Lost Cities the Board Game, from an Amazon Christmas sale back in 2012. I should probably cover Lost Cities the Board Game at some point in the future. It's not a title that a ton of people are familiar with, and I think it's very good. I attempted to trade for Picomino a couple of times in the last few years, but it's such an evergreen and beloved title that people don't seem to get rid of it too often. Now, of course, at any point, I could have just bought a used copy of it or imported it from Germany, but it always seemed like they were bigger or newer or more interesting, put an asterisk here, we should come back to that some other time, games that I was pursuing. As part of a radical culling and rethinking in the last year of what kind of games matter to us and what we want to own and keep and play, Megan and I have realized that small box, simple games that offer rules-light replayability are more important to us than anything else. Picomino, first published in 2005, is a rules-light dice-rolling game that, depending on how you choose to play it, could be a fun time-passer, a brutal exercise in pressing your luck, or a cutthroat relationship-ending battle. The German title is Heckmeck und Bratwerkmeck, but it's called Picomino in English because the scoring tiles are basically a domino with a number in black on top, and between one and five cartoon worms underneath it. The number in black is the value of dice you have to roll on your turn in order to buy the tile, and the number of worms on the bottom are the points you'll score at the end of the game if you hold said tile. On your turn, you roll eight identical six-sided dice. The six on these dice has been replaced with a red worm that's only worth five, but you'll need them if you want to buy anything on your turn. You get up to three rolls, and you have to keep all of one number each roll. The brutal push-your-luck choices the good doctor has baked into Picomino are driven by the possibility of crapping out and not being able to buy anything. In a game that wasn't mean, you just lose your turn. But if you're unable to buy a tile at the end of your turn here, or to steal a tile from the top of your opponent's stack if you happen to roll the exact number they have showing, either because you didn't roll any worms, or because your roll value wasn't high enough for any of the available tiles, your turn is over. You have to then return the top tile in your stack, and the highest value worm on the barbecue burns up and goes away. Probably worth mentioning at this point that the Commodore is a game about chickens barbecuing worms for some reason. Like most of my other favorite games, the theme here is absurd and somewhat irrelevant. We own a number of the other games in the Zock Chicken series, and they're all like this, which is part of why I love them. I think it's really unfortunate that so many American publishers either lean heavily into very serious and gorgeous art, or falsely whimsical and twee art. There's something about the balance of the cute and the weird and the grotesque that Zock Games managed to convey that very few other publishers achieve, besides maybe Dre Magier and their very weird and ugly and cool cockroach poker and salad line. Sadly, Picomino is no longer in print from a U.S. publisher, but you can easily buy an import copy on Amazon, and there are several reasonably priced used copies available in the Board Game Geek marketplace. But you can also make your own. What will you need? Well, if you want to make a fancy copy for yourself, you'll need eight dice, white, red, and black paint pens, and a cheap set of dominoes. Number the top half of the blank sides of the dominoes 21 through 36 in black. 21 through 24 get one worm, 25 through 28 get two worms, 29 through 32 get three worms, and 33 through 36 get four worms. If you don't want to draw the worms, just put red dots below the numbers. It'll be fine. 
Fill in the pips of the number 6 face of all 8 dice with white paint. After that paint dries, draw a red worm where the 6 pips used to be. Now if you're too lazy, just put one big red dot. You now own a set of Picomino. Now, if anybody wants to, it's possible to put together group orders of custom Picomino dice from Chessex. The dice that come in the box are wooden and fairly lightweight, so they don't really roll that well and they don't feel very good. The custom dice cost $1 each plus shipping. Now, if we could get a large enough order together, something like 25 to 30 sets, it could save everyone a lot on the shipping. If that's something you'd be interested in, you can message me on Twitter or BoardGameGeek. So, who should play Picomino? People who like to roll dice. People who like to buy tiles. People who like to steal tiles. And people who want a game that works equally well at weddings, parties, funerals, birthdays, or graduations. I give Picomino four out of four chickens roasting up delicious worms at a cookout. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Discount Compost, as well as on Board Game Geek as Breakfast Core. Wash your hands and wear a mask. Five by listeners, it's Ruth here getting ready to celebrate. You see, Akbar the Great's birthday festivities are beginning, and many notable people are heading for the capital. This is the setting for Agra, published in 2017 by Quind Games and designed by Michael Keller. In this worker placement game, two to four players work to produce goods on their land, process the goods into more valuable items, and then deliver the results to said notables, to the guilds, and to the emperor himself in order to make the most money by the time the festivities end. The winner will be whoever's earned the most rupees at the end of this deliciously heavy complex game that's well worth the 30 to 40 minutes per player that it takes to play. Each turn in Agra has three phases, meditation, a main action, and then delivery. On top of this, players have many secondary and bonus actions available that can be used at any time during the three phases. So things get more and more complicated when you start to consider all of the options and how everything interconnects. It's also a game where things ramp up as the game progresses. Initial turns often involve only the main action phase, as players will need to produce basic goods or process them into a few better ones before they're able to start feeling the more complex actions, but once players have built up some resources, suddenly a sample turn could involve something like meditating some previously placed workers to start your turn by increasing personal production and trading a few goods, then placing a worker for a main action, using a turned-in good to pay a sailor to deliver multiple items, earning rupees and possibly a card that gives a special ability, before turning in a statue to take a second main action to process more goods, before finally dropping off a couple items to a local guild to boost your reputation, earn more rupees, and maybe a tile that gives you access to a new bonus action. And that's just one of the many, many ways a single turn could end up playing out. Key to the game is the ability to turn basic goods into process goods, and depending on the pathway taken, into luxury goods. Players can take their simple sandstone, logs, turmeric, and cotton, and turn them into the resources needed to build new action spaces on the board, to restore their workers' energy, or to improve the efficiency of their meditation track. But the same goods could also be turned into items needed to fulfill lucrative orders, or could be given as birthday gifts to the emperor. And then there's the fact that you can use a luxury good for a special bonus action on your turn. This variety of uses for the same goods lets players earn rupees in a variety of ways, provided they can figure out the most efficient way to get what they need before someone else gets there first. And thus, I find Agra to be a delightfully puzzly experience. And when I figure out a nice, efficient pathway, I love that feeling of accomplishment it provides. 
One of the things I really like about the game is the way it uses another resource called Favor. This is used to fuel bonus actions that can be taken at any point during a turn, including in the middle of completing other actions, which allows for some pretty impressive combinations to be pulled off. Favor is earned in a few different ways. Most typically, it's from either being bumped or from allowing others to process their own goods when you're taking a processing action. I love that most of the favor economy thus comes from other players choosing to give you favor in return for, well, getting a favor. And it forces more interaction, but not in a negative take that way, which I like. One of the most clever decisions in the game's production, in my opinion, is the use of the same player markers for everything, with the PC's location on either the main player or imperial boards determining what it currently represents. The pieces also feature both a flat and an angled end, as the imperial board that holds guild orders, influence tracks, and the emperor gifts is angled to increase visibility across the table. This works very well, but be wary if your hand has a tendency to shake, as the double-layered spots to place pieces don't actually hold them very securely, making it easy to send them tumbling down the board. Using the same pieces for everything in the game works better than having multiple resource tokens or bits in play, as having to switch things out with every single processing action would get very fiddly and irritating. Plus, having player resources on the main board means players can quickly see who has what available to them. This ability to read the board state quickly comes mainly from color contrast. You see, the vibrant neon play color stand out from Michael Menzel's warm, almost sepia-toned art, and from each other, to help players parse what they're looking at. That being said, while the iconography is good, the board art does obscure the boundaries of action spaces, and the arrows connecting them together aren't the clearest, so a player's ability to know what things are does rely a little bit on being familiar with the layout. Agra is a dense, heavy game, and I love it, even if I'm not particularly good at it. Variable triggers for the game end give a sense of urgency to some of the final turns, as you start to notice ways in which either you or an opponent might force everyone to suddenly be facing just one last round with which to make the most of their goods. And since rupees earned during the game are kept hidden in coin pouches, you can't actually be sure at times who's winning. Learning Agra is certainly something of a commitment, and player aids can be invaluable when taking some of the more complicated actions. But take the time to learn it, and I find Agra rewards you with an extremely satisfying experience. So if you find yourself offered the chance to learn and play Agra, give it a shot and let me know what you think of this beast. You can find me on Twitter at Roof, that's an R, four O's and an F. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Fi Buy, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at FiveByGames. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash FiveByGames. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at FiveByGames.com. If you like what we do here on the FiveBy and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash FiveByGames. Thanks for listening. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.